Welcome back to On Air with Clean Air Council. I'm your host, Katie Edwards. Clean Air Council is a member-supported, nonprofit environmental organization dedicated to protecting everyone's right to a healthy environment. The council is headquartered in Philadelphia and works through public education, community advocacy, and government oversight to ensure enforcement of environmental laws. Welcome to part two of the East Palestine Train Derailment podcast. I'm joined again by Andrew Womer, Clean Air Council Advocacy Coordinator for Southwest Pennsylvania, Hillary Flint, Director of Communications and Community Engagement for Beaver County Marcellus Awareness, and Vice President of Unity Council for the East Palestine Train Derailment, and finally Jess Kennard, Appalachia Director for Beyond Plastics. We're here again to continue our conversation about the East Palestine train derailment and what the response on the ground has been like. Are residents getting any sort of support for these health impacts that they're experiencing, or are you really just left on your own? Speaking as a Pennsylvanian, there is a clinic set up in East Palestine. Anyone from Ohio can go to that clinic, and if their illness is traced back to the derailment, that visit is free, the treatment is free, you know, taxpayer-funded, only people from Ohio can go there, and for it to be free to the person going, their illness has to be traced back to the derailment. Now, in my state, in Pennsylvania, we don't have that. We have no way of getting free help. We can't go to that clinic. The only thing that Norfolk Southern has offered us is there is a toxicologist we can talk to on the phone. And if we then have a referral to go see that toxicologist, that is something we have to pay ourselves. You know, it's not good in either state. I will say Pennsylvania definitely has less access. But again, the folks that are going to that clinic in Ohio, how do they trace that back to the derailment when everyone is telling us it can't be the derailment? So even the health system that's in place isn't effective. And that's been a huge part of what we're doing as a part of one of the groups I helped start Unity Council for the East Palestine Terrain Derailment. We have wonderful partners like Jess who are out there saying, hey, we need healthcare," And there's actually precedents for that. And there is a whole town of Libby, Montana, who was able to get Medicare for everyone there because they were exposed to an environmental toxin and just figuring out different ways to get people help. Because unfortunately, the EPA is not doing that. The CDC doesn't seem to be doing that. And our legislators are helping our efforts, but they're not necessarily leading it either. Um, So it's been really very much on the people to figure out how do we get what we need. And to Hillary's point with the clinic that is established in East Palestine, she mentioned how in order to get your services paid for, you have to link it back to the derailment. But it's really important to understand that this clinic is not doing any specialized testing for the chemicals. It's basically like going to your primary care physician and just getting your blood work done, maybe sending you to a specialist if you have symptoms. But they're not actually doing any of the testing for the actual chemicals. You can no longer get your vinyl chloride metabolite. You can't get your benzene test done. And this is because the labs in this area are now refusing to complete these tests. And none of us know why. I have an order from my physician to get these tests done, and I can't find anywhere around here that will do it that 
also accepts my insurance. And so this is a very expensive lab test that we would need in order to prove that these chemicals are in our bodies and we don't have access to it. It exists, we just can't get it. And that's a huge problem. If you want to get your service paid for, you have to prove it. Well, they're not providing us with the opportunity to do that. I think to Hillary's point about a lot of the relief coming from other communities and other people, that's where the Clean Air Council and myself tried to engage where we could in in the limited way that we could by providing low to no barrier access to what we could, right? And that was respirators, water, chemical-free cleaning materials, trash bags, gloves, you know, things where folks could start to clean out the items that they wanted to get rid of um, that were contaminated. If people felt that they were getting exposed when they were outside or wanted to go sample water or disturb their soil or whatever to take samples, you know, providing those respirators that, while not perfect, you know, there are off-the-shelf respirators that can filter some of these chemicals. And on top of that, our air purifier distribution, just through our pre-existing relationships at the council and other work that we do here in southwestern Pennsylvania, you know, we were able to get really high quality HEPA filters with activated carbon filters. You know, we were able to distribute roughly 150, but, you know, we provided those for free. We provided as many as we could for the funds that we could raise from our members and partner organizations. And we know that at least for some people, especially with their respiratory ailments, it did limit exposure in a lot of households. You know, we got feedback from some households that the night that they plugged in our air purifier was the first night in months that they didn't wake up with a headache or wake up with a bloody nose or something like that. It was really heartening for me to see, you know, the Pittsburgh community and cleaner council members and partner organizations from the region step up and give what they could to help. But it's not enough. And you know, we aren't FEMA, right? Like we, we don't know what to do in this situation. We just kind of dove in and did what we could. And sadly, it seems like in some ways we've limited household contamination more than the federal government has. On one hand, I'm kind of proud of that. And then on the other hand, it's shocking and horrible. You know, we're, we're doing what we can, but we don't have the resources that the federal government has. Andrew, I'm so grateful for the Clean Air Council and really for all of the individuals and organizations, the nonprofits, everyone that has stepped up in this community and nationwide to help the people impacted by the train derailment, not just people in East Palestine, but PA, West Virginia, you know, anybody within that 30 mile radius. And it's so incredible to see this effort. And it's also nice to see Norfolk Southern have an assistance center. But one of the things that I've started to realize is that Norfolk Southern is not an emergency management agency. And if you put it in perspective, say you're in a car accident and it's not your fault, would you take your car repair bills and your medical bills to the liable party or would you take them to your insurance company? 
I probably would not contact the liable party anymore because that's really a conflict of interest to try to work that out with somebody that caused you harm. It's almost an abusive relationship at that point. So for those of us that do need reimbursed for things like air filters, water filters, water, clothing, because somebody evacuated in the middle of the night, we are then required to confront our polluter and beg for reimbursement. And there is no appeals process. So going back to the car accident, it would be nice for the federal government to step in and be that insurance company and say, okay, what do you need? These are the things that we can offer you and provide that service, provide those resources, provide an appeals process, and then have Norfolk Southern pay the government rather than trying to pay the victims individually. So this is a big problem that we're having in the community is, yes, we want to make Norfolk Southern pay. I think all of us want to make Norfolk Southern pay, but they're not an emergency management agency, and they're just not providing us with the the resources that we need to survive at this point. Yeah, and on Jess's point, there's a lot of inequality that goes on at the Assistance Center without having written guidelines or policies or an appeals process. We're seeing, you know, three people could go into the assistance center that need items replaced in their home. One person will be told no. One person will be told, yeah, go to the store, buy whatever you want and come back with your receipt and we'll reimburse it. Another person might be told, oh, we'll give you $2,500. So there's no standard which allows them to pick and choose who's actually getting properly reimbursed. And the fact that people have to do this as a reimbursement is a problem to begin with. We have families still to this day staying in hotels that have to pay for that up front. And if you're a large family and you have a couple of hotel rooms, we're talking $8,000, $10,000 a month that you have to pay and then go back to Norfolk Southern and say, please reimburse me. I mean, I don't know how some of these families are doing it, and it wasn't sustainable. And that's the reason why some families move back into their homes and why their their kids are sick. There's a, a poor woman who, for that same reason, moved back into her home. Her kid is now covered in head-to-toe rashes. And the EPA knows this, Norfolk Southern knows this, and no one's doing anything. It's just, it's such an injustice to the area. Like Jess said, we, we shouldn't have to beg our polluter for basic needs. It, it's honestly disgusting. And if I could also talk about the value assurance program, which is the home reimbursement program that Norfolk Southern has out, there's a couple things that are wrong about that. First and foremost, I think most of us have a moral obligation that if your home is full of chemicals or it's not safe for someone to live there, do you want to sell your home to another family? So with the Value Assurance Program, Norfolk Southern is essentially paying the difference between what your home was valued at prior to the derailment and then what you are selling it for now. So say your home was valued at $50,000 prior to the derailment and you were only able to sell it for $40,000, Norfolk Southern would potentially pay you $10,000 difference for your home only if you sign that you will no longer pursue any litigation against them in terms of the derailment. And this is forever. So that's a problem. 
there's also nothing for anyone that does not sell their home. So if you want to sell your home and your home does not sell, there is no money coming from Norfolk Southern for those folks. And if you don't want to sell your home, if you want to stay, even though the value of your home has declined, there is also no fund for that. But I think the main point is that you're giving up your litigation rights down the road. And this would include things like medical, if you ended up with cancer or another ailment of sorts. And and that's a problem because you can't predict the future. And I think all of us, I feel like I can speak to all of us, at least the ones that are sick and fighting, is that we are terrified to get sick in 10 or 20 years. I know I am. Yeah. And I I will say my family, we've been waiting for this VAP program to come out. I have been asking questions ever since it was announced months ago and no one was able to answer them. You know, I had been staying in hotels just as I could afford it. I did not receive any reimbursements from Norfolk Southern until seven months in. So, you know, I was only doing what I could. And as we were waiting, my family finally said, hey, let's run to home. So we did that. And now we are considered permanently relocated, which means we cannot get any additional assistance from Norfolk Southern. At first, you know, that's kind of upsetting to hear because we still own this house. We still have to pay taxes on it. But we thought, okay, we'll wait for this program to come out and go from there. Then it comes out and... Like Jess said, who who is going to sign away their legal right? And not only do we have a moral obligation if we sell our home to someone, what if that person who buys our home sues us because they get sick? No one's talking about that. You know, in my home, we know there was vinyl chloride and ethyl hexoacrylate. I have those test results. Someone buys my house and then they get sick down the road. Am I liable? However, I've had to sign away my rights to Norfolk Southern. There's just so many questions and the answers never seem to be something actually helpful. So now we're considered permanently relocated, yet we own this home. We just don't know what to do with at this point. Besides setting up community programs that just seem woefully inadequate, how is Norfolk Southern's response to this derailment been? I'm really tired of seeing the Norfolk Southern logo plastered all over my community of East Palestine. It is traumatic. And this is something that has caused a lot of division in the community. Norfolk Southern persists on exploiting this community with their very good PR campaign. I mean, it's it's really solid PR work. But again, I think they're ignoring those core issues and they've convinced some of our elected officials that they're doing the right thing, that they're making it right. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong one way or the other. If you're not sick and you want to move on with your life and you don't want to join the fight, that is your choice. And I support that. But the fact that our mayor of East Palestine has recognized uh, to the media that there are ongoing health issues in the community and yet does not work to implement a program to help those people when you're agreeing to a $25 million park. That's a problem. 
if you're the mayor of a community, you have to be the mayor of all of them. And same with, you know, I could <laughs> I could push that out to Ohio to the senators. I could push that out to the president who hasn't been here yet. When you are an elected official, you're not just working for the people that voted for you. You're working for all of the people that are in your charge, that are in your jurisdiction. And I think that that's an important thing to recognize here. Norfolk Southern has had a textbook, nearly perfect public relations response to what happened. As Jess mentioned, they're putting their logo on as many things as possible. They are sponsoring events even in communities that might not be impacted. In New Galley, Pennsylvania, they made all rides free at a fair. They uh, sponsored a farmer's market. They're sponsoring firework shows locally, you know, ads in the paper, and just making it so you can't get away from the person that, you know, made you sick, that polluted your home. And it makes it seem like, oh, they're doing all these great things for the community. They're handing out teddy bears. They're giving everyone's dog free nail clippings at a local pet store. Like all the things Norfolk Southern is doing is so far from what is actually needed that it becomes offensive. That's so lovely that you want to let kids ride for free at a fair. But who is paying the bills for my cancer scans? It's incredibly offensive to anyone who is sick and suffering that they are allowed to be the sponsor of everything in the area. And here they are. They, you know, they say they're doing everything they can do. It was all over the media how they almost spent a billion dollars in East Palestine. Some said 800 million. Yet somehow they still find 1.6 million dollars to buy a railroad in Cincinnati right next door to, you know, what's happened here. So I, I don't want to hear it that Norfolk Southern has spent so much money in the area because they're not spending it on what they need to spend it on, which is healthcare, reimbursements, relocation, and until they take care of the basic needs. I don't really care that I might be able to get a free eggplant at a farmer's market, pay my healthcare bills. It, it just seems so obvious. That's such a good point. How can we cut through this shiny PR campaign and actually start to hold Norfolk Southern accountable for the toxic disaster they created? That is a really, really good question because, as Hillary mentioned, Norfolk Southern is not hurting financially. They have insurance for things like this. They build things like this into the budget because they know that their rickety rail system is going to fail. And so this isn't necessarily an issue of how do we stick it to Norfolk Southern? Because I don't know if that's necessarily going to be possible by using East Palestine and surrounding areas as an example, one of the things that we can do that can bring us all out of this crisis is things like improve rail safety, ban vinyl chloride, improve hazmat transportation. But you know, I think it's really important that we realize that we do require a robust rail system in order for our economy to function. And so I don't necessarily think it's enough to just punish Norfolk Southern. I think that we need to really look into the root of this problem. Train derailments happen all the time, right? And, and generally, these things, I would say most of the time, 
communities aren't uprooted like mine. It was the spill of the vinyl chloride, the vent and burn of the vinyl chloride that's continued to uproot my community here. And I think that that needs a hefty revamp as well as rail safety. Norfolk Southern continues to lobby against rail safety despite really great recommendations from rail safety lobbyists. The EPA continues to put vinyl chloride and benzene and all of these chemicals on the trains and just run them through these towns. And so I think in order to make real change, you really have to recognize that what happened here is a grim warning and it will continue to happen if we don't change the policy behind, if we don't start banning these chemicals and and preventing them from coming into our communities in the first place. I don't think it's enough to stick it to Norfolk Southern. I think we need to, to take it a step further and realize that this could happen in any other community and how do we prevent that? from happening. I agree. And listen, I'm radical. If you want to know how I want to punish Norfolk Southern, it's to shut them down. I feel the same way about things like the Shell Plastics plant. If you can't operate safely, I think that that's it. I think your door's closed. But as Jess said, there are some realistic ways that we can hold them accountable. I think the attorney general in PA in Ohio has some work to do. I think that that's more so their job to hold Norfolk Southern accountable than it is us as residents. However, of course, Unity Council and Beyond Plastics and BC Mac, we're all going to work to advocate for a lot of the things Jess talked about. Reducing plastics, better railroad safety. Having every community have a solid emergency plan. It can be as simple as that. But to hold Norfolk Southern accountable, we just have to keep talking about our experience. That's what we can do as people that were affected. And we'll, we'll continue to do that. Other than that, I don't think it's up to we the people to hold Norfolk Southern accountable. I thought that's what the United States government was for. I thought their job was to protect us from these corporate conglomerates. If they aren't doing that, then we, the people, also have to hold the government accountable, which I know Jess and I talk to our elected officials quite often. But again, it's not what we should have to do. This is just how it's supposed to work. And there's a lot bigger problems in the United States than just Norfolk Southern. It's all of these companies that are allowed to take advantage of communities to increase their bottom line, to make more money. Well, and kind of circling back to what we talked about earlier was there is a discrimination issue that is happening with the rail system and with, you know, these chemicals, where they're manufactured, where we recycle the plastics. The efforts here as a result of the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment have been environmentally unjust. And every day that President Biden waits to declare an emergency really does put my community at risk. And it tells the nation that we're just not worth saving. And this is a problem that you can see in many other communities in the nation that are frontline, fenceline communities to places where these chemicals are made and manufactured. I was recently on a boat in the Ohio River, actually yesterday, and Hillary had mentioned the Shell ethane cracker plant. Um, we went down to those outfalls and saw and smelled the things that are coming out of these plants back into the river. And it's 
it's just egregious that a corporation can pollute at such a high level, and yet I throw my Sprite bottle into the river, and each Sprite bottle, I have a $500 fine. And yet these companies pollute every single day, and there are no criminal charges being made. I don't even drink Sprite. But I think my point is that, you know, the everyday person, all of the residents here, we we do try to follow the rules and we do try not to pollute. And yet the corporations don't pay any fines because they aren't regulated and they continue to pollute every single day. And we're the receivers of that pollution. So just to back up for a minute, how did the derailment impact the surrounding environment, the water, the ecosystem, that sort of thing? The creeks are grossly contaminated. It's disgusting. You can walk up to the creeks and almost immediately smell the chemicals. If you walk through it, throw a rock, turn over a rock, run a stick through it, you can see the chemicals. What you have to understand about the creeks is that they run underneath homes, underneath businesses, all throughout the town. And the EPA has admitted that the creeks are contaminated. They have said that the testing is coming back normal. It's all safe. They recently expanded the the areas where they were testing for contaminants. And I was very appreciative of that because it was very obvious that the areas are contaminated, that they're not safe. They posted little baby signs every few, I don't know, yards. But there are still kids that play in the creeks. I mean, the kids aren't going to always abide by the little sign that, that's there. And so I think, again, it's, it's the gaslighting that continues to happen. There's still contamination here, but you're not going to find the contaminants if you aren't looking in the right places. You know, you're never going to find milk in a closet. And I know that sounds like a weird analogy, but a home could have milk and where would you look? These people from the EPA are not stupid. They know exactly where to look. And for some reason, they're not looking. And and again, we need to start looking at the whole picture. If you don't find what you're looking for in one place, you need to look in another place because people are still sick. I think what's going on in the creeks is it's jaw-dropping. It does not take a scientist or a researcher or an expert to see that they are grossly contaminated. There's areas where it's bubbling, there's areas where it's darker, but there's areas where it looks like a rainbow sheen on the top. It's so apparent. And for the EPA to come back and say things like, oh, there's not actually anything dangerous in there. Or one of my personal favorites is that's not from the derailment. That's from pre-existing pollution. It's just, it's so offensive Not too long ago, there were some residents that found a large fish kill incident by a bridge that was under construction, and they posted about it online. And there has been this kind of battle back and forth between the EPA and citizen scientists. And honestly, at this point, I think the citizen scientists are winning because anyone can see the contamination. You know, they take a video down there and they just kind of flip over a rock and they show what comes out of there. They pick up a frog and you can see the the rainbow sheen coming out of this dead frog. 
again, the EPA will just come back with, oh, there's always been contamination in this area that has nothing to do with the derailment. Oh, that's from the bridge construction. But what they don't tell you is it's because that bridge construction is moving the soil around the creek, which is disturbing these chemicals that have been now sitting there for months. And what we don't talk about enough is that these creeks in East Palestine, as Jess said, go under homes, but they also have a direct line to the Ohio River. So they waited to clean up these creeks. It's spreading. It's now so far gone. I just, I honestly look at it and I'm like, I don't know how they remediate this one. It was the last thing on their to-do list, which I, I can't figure out. I mean, water moves, right? It moves. So don't you think it would be something that would be of immediate concern? But they didn't even look at it until I would say at least four months after the derailment. And of course, that's we're, we're seeing dead fish, dead frogs, dead snakes. But the EPA will be very quick to let you know that that has nothing to do with the derailment or the chemicals. Well, and let's talk for a second about how backwards this whole thing is, right? They started the crime scene investigation before they treated the victims. So they're testing the creek, they're testing the soil, they're testing the air. Do you go onto a crime scene and walk over the people who are bleeding and try to figure out how it happened? No, every first responder, you always go straight to the victims first. Hey, how can I help you? right? And that's not happening here. Why is that? Why are the people with health concerns repeatedly and profoundly being ignored in this situation? And again, they started the crime scene investigation before they treated the actual people. That's, that's a problem. There's been a lot of concerns from residents in the impacted area about livestock, about deer and fish in the area. There's a lot of folks who hunt and forage and fish and, and get their food from the land around them. It's a really important part of people's lifeways in this region. It's memory making, it's family traditions. You know, it hits home for me coming from a, you know, both sides of my family used to um, subsist largely off of farming and hunting and foraging. And People are scared to eat the deer. You know, they're scared to take their kids fishing. They're scared to eat the mushrooms that they forage in the forest. We heard a story at a public meeting back in late February from someone who moved from Louisiana, was farming in Louisiana, left because of the way that the petrochemical industry in Louisiana has contaminated farmland and moved up here to farm away from petrochemical production. And unfortunately, since starting their farm, you know, this train derailment happens and the shell cracker plant comes online not too far away. So the environmental impacts and broader ecological impacts are, are really at the forefront of people's minds and, and not in some sort of vague save the polar bears kind of way, but in a very real material day to day way. And the people that have livestock that they think have been impacted can't get that livestock tested. I know a farmer who currently has multiple sheep in a deep freezer because he lost one third of his flock right after the derailment. And he still to this day cannot find anyone to test them. Just this week, the EPA came out and said that it is safe to eat the food. It's safe to eat the deer. Yet they did not you know, say, hey, we've tested X amount of deer in the area and we found nothing. They just make a blanket statement saying, yeah, it's okay, it's safe. 
Yeah, they come out and say that there's no evidence to believe that it's not safe. And, you know, I think that's one of the pushbacks that we often get. You know, when Hillary and I went to speak with the EPA in Washington, D.C., one of the things that they repeatedly said was the Ohio EPA doesn't have the resources to test all of the animals. You know, that costs a lot of money to do all of the health assessments that you're asking for. And these things take a lot of time. My response to that was, we need those resources to survive. And 60% of us here in East Palestine are below poverty guidelines. So we literally have no money. And we are, again, running out of time because we continue to get sick. So this whole resources, money, time argument that we keep coming up against, it it doesn't make any sense. And it's so frustrating. You are the federal government of the United States of America. Have a little courtesy for your people. How have direct relief efforts benefited from the community? It seems like something really positive that's actually come out of this tragic derailment. I truly believe that direct support, mutual aid, community members just helping out, that has done more for us than the federal government, than Norfolk Southern. You know, when I got a rental home and I needed to replace my mattresses and my bedding. Someone through mutual aid funds made that happen. I created an Amazon wish list and Andrew shared it around to other people in the community. And that's the reason why I have clean and safe towels and pillows and things like that. When I need water, because I will not drink the water from my home in Pennsylvania, I drive down to a local chiropractor, Dr. Chai. He has been getting donations for water. So that's where we all go for that. And when it comes to needing things to help us feel safe, so like air purifiers, Clean Air Council helped with that. Indoor air monitors, the waste station in East Palestine helped with that. So in many ways, it's been the nonprofits, the mutual aid funds, the direct support through community groups. Those are the things that are helping our communities move forward. It's such real tangible help. And it can be as simple as paying affected residents to speak somewhere. I have been shocked at how much help I've received from people that I I didn't know before and how quick everyone is to say, hey, what do you need? And then actually supply that because we're not getting that from Norfolk Southern and we're not getting that from the EPA or anyone in, in government. So the one huge positive out of this is that we, the people, can help each other. It's the the shining star in all of this, and it's going to inspire the work that I do moving forward. I've always worked in the, the nonprofit realm, and this has really showed me that direct support funds are harder to find in moments like this, but it's what community members need the most. And so in everything I do moving forward, I'm going to take all the wonderful things that came out of this derailment and kind of use those lessons to help people that I work with in my nonprofit of DC Mac. I, I wouldn't have even known the term mutual aid or direct support if it wasn't for Andrew. 
So everyone in this community is so indebted to the work Andrew has done, not only through Clean Air Council, but just as a human being. So thank you, Andrew. I am deeply uncomfortable with praise, but um, on... (laughs) On my end of things, engaging in the direct relief work really gave me an opportunity to connect with people that I didn't know, connect with people from different parts of the Pittsburgh area, people from a lot of diverse walks of life who wanted to do something about this and didn't know how to plug in. Being able to talk with those folks about the broader petrochemical issue, the plastics issue in our region, uh, to be able to put a lot of people's anxiety into good use. You know, you see something horrible that happens right upstream from you to a bunch of your neighbors and a normal caring person is going to have a lot of feelings about that and feel really stuck and feel really helpless to do anything for their neighbor and being able to make a connection, right? It took four hours out of my life to drive to East Palestine, meet some folks on the ground who were active there and ask them, what materials do you need? What is the biggest need right now that isn't being met by your local government or the EPA or whatever? And to bring that information back to Pittsburgh and wave a rally flag and see union members and environmental scientists and people who have family from that area or people from all kinds of political backgrounds and professional backgrounds coming together to to pitch in knowledge, resources, hey, my friend has a truck, hey, my brother can get discounts on respirators, you know, like all these little sort of connections that you don't really think about and people doing what they can to pitch in. So on my end, I I hate to say that Pittsburgh benefited from the derailment, but it brought a lot of folks closer together. You know, we threw a lot of fundraisers, we had a lot of fun evenings raising money, you know, raffles and 50-50s and country music dance nights and stuff around town. But just being able to tell Hillary's story and Jess's story and put a face to the people in East Palestine instead of it being just this <laughs> this faceless mass uh, of people right up river, um, I guess was really important for us too. The Mutual Aid Front has been a really incredible thing to be a part of. I have benefited and contributed um, and met so many generous people along the way. What people don't realize is, yes, we can maybe get reimbursement for people that are relocated. We might be able to obtain a air filtration system, air monitoring. Those things are all important. But I think one of the things that has benefited our residents the most is just to have cash in hand. And this is something that isn't readily available. You can't get reimbursed for your cash. You can't just walk in somewhere and say, hey, I need some cash. But you think about my community and the the people that live there and say there's an elderly person, right? And they live next to the train and their neighbor brings them food. Well, now their neighbor's relocated. How are they going to get food? They have to pay a service to bring them food. That's not something that's going to be readily reimbursed because we don't we don't necessarily have DoorDash here. We don't have a whole lot of delivery services, especially for groceries. So when you take those resources that we've already had out of the community, that increases your daily cost of living. And I think that's something that has been really under-recognized. You know, when you uproot a community or you uproot someone and maybe they are relocated, maybe this elderly person does live in a hotel now. Again, she doesn't have her neighbor to come over to help her shower or use the bathroom or to help her get dressed. 
these are services that are now required to be paid for because a lot of people don't have that paid for through their insurance. So having cash in hand, I think, has been one of the most underestimated helpful areas of mutual aid. To Jess's point about the cash, you know, being able to purchase things through the Clean Air Council or through different mutual aid funds that popped up just has been so crucial because like Hillary and Jess have mentioned multiple times, there's a huge bureaucracy and there's all these steps that people have to take and every little bit of everything you do has to be documented if you want to get institutional support. And even on our best day, right, even on the United States government's best day when they want to resource something very well and they want to make it accessible, a lot of times it isn't. There's just a lot of administrative barriers in the way and it's important to be flexible and to have trust that someone who's asking for money in a situation like this is going to put it to a use that is better than anything you could think of, right? Like it's putting all these barriers in the way and asking people to justify why they need $100 to make it through the week is an issue. I've done that kind of work in the past, so I wouldn't say it was eye-opening for me, but it really reinforced my experience in the past. You know, sometimes people just need money and you should just give it to them <laughs> if they need some help. And for folks in Pittsburgh who don't know where that money is going specifically, being a conduit for that and providing like a face uh, that can be held accountable, developing trust in my community to take those funds and go, look, like they're going to go to someone who needs to replace toys for their children. Is that OK with you? You know, hey, someone's looking to get a test done or someone needs gas money to get somewhere. Who's got a hundred bucks to throw in the hat right now? It's it's really important <laughs> to uh, make sure that these relief efforts are low or no barrier to folks, because there's always going to be someone who doesn't have documentation. There's always going to be someone who doesn't, for whatever reason, meet an income threshold, language barriers, all kinds of things. So just being able to be on the ground and be flexible and, and free with resources was really appreciated by folks on the ground. So I have one last question, which is arguably the most important. It's obvious that people are still suffering. It's obvious that our environment is still being impacted from the derailment. How do folks listening today get involved? How do they become a part of BC Mac and Unity Council and Beyond Plastics? How can they lobby their elected officials? What can they do to help you? I'll start with our first big ask right now, which is share out. We have a petition asking President Biden to declare a major disaster declaration. Yeah, I think signing the petition under Unity Council is going to be really helpful moving forward so that we can get that emergency declaration. The emergency declaration would provide the community with the resources that we need to survive. And that would be relocation assistance. It could be health care coverage. We could potentially be eligible for Medicare, no matter what our age is. It could provide us with opportunities for indoor air monitoring. And I think most importantly, the emergency declaration provides us with an appeals process so that we can have those individual needs met, which is so important for the community here because we've all been impacted in very different ways. 
from a Beyond Plastics standpoint, if you go to beyondplastics.org, there is a petition to ban vinyl chloride on there as well. And there are also a lot of resources if you wanted to contact your elected officials to schedule a meeting or to write a letter to the editor, to host a rally. There's a lot of great fact sheets on there about plastics and how to prevent single-use plastics from being used and abused in the environment. It's really a great place to start. And then if you're really serious about the plastics, we do have over 100 groups across the United States. If you wanted to start your own local chapter of Beyond Plastics, that's an opportunity as well just to get things going in your community. Those are pretty good places to start. And I think it's always great to, if you're interested in a cause or an organization, follow them on social media and share their content. Beaver County Marcellus Awareness Community has a Facebook page. Unity Council for the EP Trained Realment has a Facebook group. So if you really want to stay dialed in, uh, those are probably the best ways to keep tabs on communication and share what we're doing. At BC Mac right now, for the first time ever, have two full-time employees. So it's uh, an exciting time for us and figuring out how do we protect Beaver County from incidents like what has already happened to us. And one of our programs that we run is called Eyes on Shell. There are a lot of similarities between what happened in East Palestine and what could happen at the Shell Plastics plant. And my job is to bring awareness to that. So attending any of our Eyes on Shell programs would help people understand how does this plant tie into the train derailment? Well, they all get tied back to plastics. So again, following our Facebook page, Instagram, things like that is always super, super helpful. And I agree with signing any type of pledge about banning vinyl chloride is so important right now. And also just continuing to watch what's happening with these proposed railway safety bills. After we get out of this space of fighting for our own health and safety, advocating for better railway safety and safer alternatives to plastics are going to be a big part about what Unity Council does moving forward. On the Clean Air Council's end, we're pretty active in Beaver County supporting BC Mac and Unity Council up there. So just continuing to follow our work. I think another important way to support that might seem tangential, but supporting Railroad Workers United. It's a bottom-up organization of union railway workers. And a lot of the contract issues that they brought up in their bargaining and contract fights in late 2022 would have possibly prevented this derailment having multiple workers on a train, higher safety standards, things like that. The people who drive these trains know best on how to operate this stuff safely. And when you're a worker who has to support your family being told on one hand by your boss to do something unsafe or to ignore a problem, right? A union and a workers organization is a really good way to put those safety procedures in a contract whenever regulations aren't keeping up. So support Railroad Workers United and keep up with Clean Air Council on social media as well. You can also go to the Amazon wishlist registries in the show notes and, you know, purchase items for some folks who are still looking to replace household items. Our friend Juja is living in a hotel with her family and has to replace a lot of her worldly possessions and Hillary does too. So 
Well, this has been just eye-opening talking to you, Jess, and you, Hillary, and you, Andrew. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast today and sharing your stories with our listeners. I'm sure they're going to want to follow up and take your actions and follow you on social media. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in and listening to On Air with Clean Air Council today. If you like what you heard, do us a big favor and forward our podcast to your family or your friends. Also, follow us on social media at Clean Air Council on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok.